So, I mean, hopefully those, those couple of examples demonstrate two things. First of all, the fact that the losses that can stem from a technology failure in a regulated environment can be quite far-reaching um, in terms of the, the types of loss incurred. Um, and secondly, that those losses can be very significant. So, um, on this slide, I've listed uh, the, the, the types of loss involved, particularly where there is a breach in a regulatory environment, um, starting with the, the, the most obvious or direct forms of loss. Um, I'm not going to go through these because I think they're all self-explanatory. Really what I, I want to focus on in this part of the presentation is ha having a think about how many of those terms would be excluded or from a customer standpoint, how, how many of those losses would be recoverable um, under standard contract liability terms. So on this slide, um, I have set out a fairly typical uh, supply-side exclusion clause. Um, there are obviously variations, uh, but they, they, they follow the same theme, which is um, a supplier seeking to exclude liability for financial loss, so loss of profit, loss of business, loss of revenue, um, and then seeking to split um, uh, risk allocation for other losses along the Hadley and Baxendale uh, uh, principles. So the supplier taking the risk on other forms of direct loss um, and the customer taking the risk on um, indirect losses. Um, I think the issue with um, this traditional approach is that it provides a lack of certainty for both parties um, in relation to whether the losses that we looked at on the previous slide are actually recoverable. Um, and from a supplier standpoint, um, I think it's fair to say that there's a, a strong um, arguable case that um, most, if not all, of the losses uh, that were listed on the previous slide would be recoverable um, as direct loss. So they wouldn't be excluded under a typical um, uh, supplier exclusion clause. So not ideal from a supplier perspective. Um, but equally not particularly ideal from a customer perspective because the customer has no guarantee, no certainty that it is going to recover the types of loss um, uh, that, that were listed on the previous slide. Um, and I think depending on the exact formulation of the liability clauses, some of the most important losses that a customer can suffer in a regulatory environment um, are potentially excluded. Um, and I think that was brought out in the Accenture and Centrica case where ex-gratia payments, so customer compensation payments, um, al although they were considered a direct form of loss, they were considered um, damages related to the customer's reputational loss. So if you're dealing with um, an exclusion clause or a clause which seeks to exclude liability for loss of goodwill um, or loss of reputation, <coughs> which a lot of supplier um, clauses seek to do, there is a danger from a customer standpoint that that will cut across your ability to recover um, customer compensation payments. So. As a result of this, um, I think what we're starting to see is a, is a very gradual shift away from reliance on traditional Hadley and Baxendale type um, approach to allocation of risk and a move towards a much more explicit um, uh, uh, listing by both parties of those losses that are recoverable and irrecoverable. So the parties dealing explicitly with many of the losses that um, we looked at on the previous slide. Um, and coupled with that, um, we're also seeing a gradual move towards um, or, or a move away from a single blanket um, liability cap um, for all losses <coughs> towards um, a, a mixture of, of subcaps and supercaps for certain types of losses. So you may have subcaps for, um, for data losses, losses that suppliers wouldn't perhaps initially take on. Um, so subcaps for those and then supercaps for things like regulatory fine, fines. Um, I would say I think, I think you know, this is not yet commonplace, but we're starting to see it in the larger scale technology and outsourcing transactions. Um, and I think this approach is going to become more and more common um, as the parties seek to build in uh, greater certainty as to the risk, <coughs> risk exposure um, on these business-critical technology projects. 
So if, if I move on now to customer stepping rights, and um, I just wanted to touch briefly on um, how market practice is beginning to evolve on the, um, the negotiation and implementation of stepping. Um, as customers and suppliers get a better understanding of what's workable and what's realistic um, in large-scale technology and outsourcing projects. Um, I think the first point to note here is that step-in rights are an import from the construction industry where it's not uncommon for the funder um, to have the right to appoint a third party to step in and take over completion um, of a project where the prime contractor fails. Um, we, we all know that the FSA's material outsourcing requirements uh, impose an obligation on customers to take appropriate action where the service provider is unable to deliver. And step-in in, in um, the financial services sector is now seen as a default form of appropriate action. We've seen step-in creep, creep into other regulated sectors. And in fact, it's pretty commonplace um, in unregulated sectors as well. Um, I think the problem is that construction-type step-in, so these fully-fledged step-in rights, are, are rarely workable. Um, in technology and outsourcing contracts. And that's particularly the case in the context of the current service um, delivery models where suppliers are using facilities, personnel, and IT assets um, on a one-to-many basis um, to provide services to multiple customers. Um, and in fact, the FSA uh, in the past month has recognized the limitations and warned um, asset management companies of the dangers of relying on step-in um, just as a, an appropriate form of action. So. What we're starting to see now are alternative forms of step-in becoming increasingly common. And one of the most, most, most common examples is um, effectively enhanced management oversight arrangements. Um, this is where the customer has the right in very limited circumstances to send in a limited number of personnel. Um, quite often they're regulatory or compliance personnel, particularly in a, in a BPO context, um, to oversee how the services are being delivered, to, see, to oversee how the services are being managed. So it, it's step-in rights that are stopping well short of the customer taking over service delivery responsibility. Um, the customer's not even, not even over taking over management responsibility. So in a sense, it's really just enhanced um, oversight and governance rights. And actually, if you frame, frame it like that, frame it in the form of enhanced governance or oversight rights um, in the context of a, 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 a negotiation with a supplier, um, the suppliers tend to be a lot more relaxed about agreeing some form of step-in than if you go in with a, a, a requirement on fully-fledged step-in rights. Um, another example that I came across recently uh, was on an application development and maintenance agreement where um, the CEO of the customer involved was not interested in fully-fledged step-in rights and instead wanted to have the ability to have direct onshore access um, to the supplier's offshore development team um, for a very limited period in the event that a, a step-in um, trigger or step-in right was triggered. Um, and I think the key point in relation to step-in is for customers is to avoid treating step-in as a boilerplate provision, um, avoid taking down your off-the-shelf um, step-in provision and, and, and sticking in the contract. Have a think about <coughs> what form of step-in is going to be most appropriate given the services um, that you're outsourcing or the, or, the, or the technology that's being delivered. So just very briefly um, on document data retention obligations. Um, uh, I think the, the, the key points that I wanted to draw out in this, in this um, slide are actually um, very aptly illustrated by a case that we had um, on Friday. So a case that came out after I put this slide together. Um, but it really um, uh, emphasizes the point I wanted to make on this slide, which is the dangers of generic um, uh, 
document retention and data retention, record retention obligations if you're a supplier. So the case, um, I'll give you the, the, the case reference um, after, uh, after the presentation if you like, but the case involved transport for Gre uh, Greater Manchester and Tallis, um transport and security. The case involved a dispute relating to the scope of the retention and disclosure obligations um, under a clause which is very similar to the one I've put up on screen there. So there was a requirement on the, on the supplier to um, retain and disclose um, all records relating to the performance of its obligations under the agreement. Um, and to cut a long story short, that meant that the supplier in this case um, had an obligation to retain and disclose records, first of all, information on its, on its cost base, and that was despite the fact that it was a fixed price project, um, and that was on the grounds that the cost base related to the performance of its obligations under the agreement. Um, it was required <coughs> to disclose internal reports and, um, and internal audits on non-performance. Um, it was required to disclose commercially sensitive information relating to the supplier, um, project-specific board minutes, um, not only relating to the supplier, but also to the supplier's um, other group companies to the extent they were in the possession or control of the supplier. Um, in fact, the only thing that seemed to be excluded uh, was legally privileged documents. So I think that the, the key point here from a supplier perspective is to have certainty around the scope of the um, the, the data retention, record retention obligations that you have and avoid generic obligations relating to the performance of your obligations. Okay, I'm going to hand over now to, to Karen Kimber, uh, Managing Counsel at SunGuard. Um, Karen leads a lot of SunGuard's transactions in the financial services sector and is going to give, her, give us her experience um, as a supply-side lawyer on changing practice and customer audit requirements and compliance with customer policies. Oops. So um, customer audit rights, I think in the last um, couple of years we've definitely seen an increase in the requests from customers for the right to um, audit a supplier and I'm assuming that's definitely um, due to the change in the service model and being pushed towards the cloud. As to whether or not as a supplier you would actually agree to that, uh, to the, uh, the audit request, really depends on the service delivery uh, model being used. When the solution is being provided on an in-house basis, it's very, we're very reluctant to agree to an audit right. And if you're, from the customer's perspective, you actually have to sit back and question why you actually need an, um, an audit right in, the, in, uh, in those cases. Because when you think about it, the, um, the supplier's ongoing obligations in relation to um, uh, into an in-house licence is literally uh, ongoing support and maintenance. And in that context, a supplier has limited access to um, customer data and also the customer actually has control over the data in which the, uh, uh, the supplier has access to. So in those situations, I think it's, as a supplier, we're very reluctant to um, grant um, audit rights. This is opposed to when we're actually hosting the software and in the context of information security, data security, etc., then we are actually more um, inclined to um, grant an audit right, um, subject to obviously agreeing to the parameters around that. Um, so if the parties actually agree to a right of audit, then obviously what do you need to consider when actually granting the audit clause? And this is kind of touches on the, um, the Manchester case that Paul mentioned about being Pacific. Um, firstly, I think you need to um, cover frequency. Um, usually it's once per year, <coughs> unless obviously um, required more often by um, the customer's regulator. I think you also need to set out clearly how the, audit right sh uh, the, the request to audit should be um, conducted, notice periods, etc., um, quite typical, you would have a provision stating it has to be carried out during the supplier's normal business hours in the presence of the supplier representative, um, causing minimal disruption to the, um, the supplier's ongoing business. But I think what is really key is also clearly defining what the customer can audit 
and for what purpose. So if the purpose for granting the audit right is, say, like data security, make it sure it's clear that that is exactly the reason for granting the audit right, as opposed to you know, making it just a blanket that's in relation to the, you know, the performance of the obligations under the contract. Um, I also think it's, pretty, it's also important to set out what information, as part of the audit, the supplier has to make available to the customer. So if there's certain information that, as a supplier, you don't want the customer to have access to, expressly exclude that. So once again, like pricing information. So if you're not you know, happy to have an open book review, make sure you exclude that from the customer's right to audit. Also, any other sort of, custo uh, any other sort of um, uh, commercially sensitive information. And also, obviously, you'd also want to exclude the fact that you shouldn't be, um, have to make available to the, um, the customer any other customer's um, confidential information. Um, the final point that I think is also really important to include in the, uh, the um, audit clause is um, the cost and who bears those costs. I think there's definitely been a move away where traditionally each party bore, um, took on the, uh, bore their own costs associated with the audit. I think suppliers are now um, pushing more to the fact that the customer, in the case of customer audit, should um, be uh, paying for some of the supplier's costs uh, associated with that audit. And I'll come on to that in more re uh, in detail as to the reasons why um, that is the case um, shortly. So once you've actually spent all that time negotiating and agreeing to a, um, a customer audit clause, is the right um, of audit actually ever exercised? Pre-contract, yes, which ironically is when the audit clause doesn't actually um, apply. Um, we do find that as part of the customer's due diligence process, they do regularly um, carry out audits of us, especially around information security. But post-contract, it's very rare. Um, rather... Um, uh, the customers rely on the SSAE number 16 report. The SSAE <coughs> number 16 report replaced what was the SAS, called the SAS 70. For those that don't know about this report, it's a report that the supplier procures to, on an annual basis um, from a third party. Um, we, we, we engage one of the uh, major accounting firms to carry, um, to carry out this audit, which covers the control objectives and activities are in place at the supplier. It's always entity-specific and also site-specific. So some of our premises may be um, compliant, may be subject to a, uh, an SSAE um, report and other premises are not. I think the exception to when a, um, a, 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 an audit may be requested by a customer post-contract is where the SSAE report is not received in time and, for example, if the customer <laughs> has its own SOX reporting requirements. So if, as a supplier, if we can't make it available to them, that report available to them in time for them to meet the customer's reporting requirements, then yes, we are often subject to a, an audit by the customer. Or and also, I would expect that if there was actually a security breach, um, also the customer would be requesting the right to um, exercise its audit rights. So what is actually audited? Um, in recent years, we've seen a move away from a physical security audit. Before we used to, people, uh, the customers used to come to us and just check to make sure there was locks on the doors, a security guard, a gate, CCTV cameras. That's definitely um, a thing of the past. And the customers are now more interested in logical security, which from a supplier's perspective is actually far harder to demonstrate in evidence that you've got these sort of, you know, checks and balances in place. The customers are now more concerned about where the data is being stored, where it is going, 
and who is accessing it and how, so things around access rights, authority levels, etc. They're also very interested in our staff vetting and background checks that we undertake with respect to our employees, and I'll come on um, to that topic again um, later. Change controls, so how we um, uh, make changes and updates to the system, <coughs> how they're implemented and carried out, and also incident problem, ma um, problem management, so how faults, etc., um, are dealt with, so response times, resolution times, etc. System access is very rare, and also penetration testing is also rare. Rather, with respect to penetration testing, the customer don't carry out their own tests. We actually don't agree to it, but um, rather if the customer's asking about penetration testing, we actually also um, engage a third party to carry out penetration testing, and we're more likely to provide that report to the customer. Um, so, uh, so when you've carried out that audit, et cetera, so who bears the cost? The time and effort involved in a, um, a customer audit from a supplier's perspective has absolutely no relation to the deal value or the scale of the opportunity. Rather, it is very much driven by the, um, the customer's audit operation. We find that where the customer's audit operation is just part of a larger function, then the actual effort involved is very small, typically less than one day. But when the um, audit function is actually part of a um, is, is its own discrete department, or where the customer is engaged a third party to carry out the audit on their behalf, then the audit um, and the time and effort on our side is far more extensive. And we can find it can take up to five or six business days assisting that customer with the audit. And it involves both on-site and also follow-up Q&A, conference calls, etc. And it draws upon a, member, a number of staff um, through various different departments within Songard, including HR, security development, legal. Um, and so it is quite an extensive process. And I think it's for this particular reason why you're finding that suppliers are increasingly trying to push the cost of an audit over to the, um, to the customer. So whilst the, um, the supplier may be willing to bear an initial number of hours per year associated with the, assisting the customer with the audit, I think typically we might agree to four to eight, that's just us. Um, I think once you exceed that number of hours, then the suppliers, the suppliers are expecting that the, um, the customer pays for that. <coughs> so sort of moving on to another thing that we've seen an increased um, number of requests in relation to is um, compliance with customers' um, information security policies. Um, we believe that market practice is where the services are being delivered um, at the customer site, then it's kind of logical that the supplier can agree to comply with the customer's IS policy. But where the services are being provided from, a, from the um, supplier's location, then it's more logical and practical for the, um, the supplier's IS policy to um, prevail or to apply. Most customers accept that, but there is always the exception to the rule. I think that's partially because we're there are a number of smaller vendors out there that are willing to agree to comply with the customer's policies, even when we're providing the uh, when they're providing the services on site. Um, and there obviously, also there are situations where, as part of the actual service offering, the customer is paying for us to build a dedicated environment. So, in those situations, then obviously we are factored in the cost of that compliance um, in the in the fee um, arrangement. And then, obviously, you know, we as a supplier can comply with the um, the customer's IS policy. Um, I'm now just in terms of the reasons why, from a practical perspective, when you're providing the services on site at a customer. 
um, and providing the services for a customer on site at the supplier's premises as to why it's not really feasible for um, the, uh, the supplier to comply with the customer's um, IS policy is one, the customer has its own policy and the premises, the premises etc., the operations are set up to comply with that customer, um, with the, the supplier's own policy. Um, secondly, the customer's IS policy is often not drafted to apply to customers, to suppliers. So you look at, when you start look at reading the IS policy, it sort of says, you know, the customer's premises shall do this, or the customer's staff shall do that. Well, what provisions actually apply to supplier staff? What provisions provide, uh, apply to the supplier? And it becomes quite, it's not exactly black and white, and so it becomes quite confusing. Also, there's conflicts between the policies. So imagine if you're the supplier, if a customer's insisting on you apply, complying with their IS policy and you're not having a dedicated environment, there'd be conflicts between the supplier's policy versus the customer's policy versus the other supplier's customer's policies. And, you know, there's just no way that you can one, make one premise compliant with all three, you know, all the various policies out there. Um, and I think this is probably the key point. Um, so whilst I think we find that the vast majority of the policies are the same. The kind of the devil is in the detail, and, and, and that's where it becomes difficult. When we have been actually um, requested by customers to uh, carry out a gap analysis to determine the differences, it's a, it's a huge effort. We typically find just the initial review of the customer's policy to understand what they're actually expecting can take between 30 and 40 hours. And that's just to get to us to the initial point where we can then have a sort of an education, educated dialogue with the customer in terms of, you know, the, determine what the gaps are and how they're going to be dealt with. And then when there is, the, when you do identify the gaps that need to be for, um, filled, um, in terms of the cost of filling those gaps, it's substantial to, um, sums of money. We're talking six to seven figures. So it's not just a few thousand, we're talking multiple thousands or into the millions. And this is per year, and that's to cover the cost of um, infrastructure costs and headcount primarily. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons why we're, you know, if, if a supplier is providing services from their premises, they push very back, very difficult, um, very hard in terms of, you know, whether or not they, comp uh, the uh, th th they can comply with the customer's IS policy. And then the last thing I'm just going to briefly touch on is staff vetting. And once again, we're seeing an increase in um, the requests from customers to include contractual provisions around staff vetting and background checks. I think as a supplier, we have we do actually carry out background checks, and in, because we operate in the um, financial um, services sector, with respect to our employees, we carry out not only reference checks but also credit checks and um, criminal record checks. Um, the problem that we have from a contractual perspective and why we're often um, not willing to agree to an actual contractual provision around staff vetting is the, um, what checks we take, undertake with respect to our employees differ from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And that is because um, either for legal reasons or just cultural reasons. So whilst it's quite common here in the UK and say also the US to subject our employees to criminal record checks, it's not the same in say France like it's not very common here in the UK to subject your employees to drug testing where it is in the US. So there is a lot of number, there's a, uh, there are a number of uh, discrepancies. And the other thing as well is that the checks that the employees are, are being subject to is very much dependent on the time in which they were employed by us, by SunGuard, or whether or not they've actually come in through, um, come in through acquisition. So 
whilst you might have somebody that's been employed with SunGuard for 10 years, 10 years ago we weren't undertaking criminal record checks. Um, and you know, if, you've, if we've acquired a company, a small company, once again, it's very unlikely that they were subjecting their um, staff to, crim uh, to criminal checks. So it does make it very difficult from a contractual perspective to, to agree to, um, to, to a provision on background checks because of the fact that there is no common standard across the globe or across the, the, the employee staff basis. Um, and then I just, just my probably my final point on this is that whilst um, I'm quite left on this one actually, I, I find it quite intrusive to ask existing staff to be subject to new checks because that's something we don't do. We don't, we don't take staff, we, as a matter of practice, we don't take staff that are employed with us for 20 years and now subject, to, subject them to employ, uh, employment screening checks. But when we have to, we have to go to that staff, we have to make it sure it's clear that they, you know, they don't have to agree. But surprisingly, from my perspective, a lot of the employees are actually willing to be subject to, to, to new checks. So, um, yeah, so that was kind of staff vetting. Perfect. Uh, congratulations. Well done. You're all entitled to your CPD power-up for still staying with us. Um, in the words of Shania Twain, looks like we've made it. We've made it to the last session through. I'm not going to prattle on for too long. There's a couple of reasons for that. One of with the most important of which every bit of information I'm going to speak about is already in the written materials which being circulated has been on the, been on the website. <coughs> and, and partly and probably most importantly, I'm not going to prattle on because speaking with me is Ian Dunn, Ian's Assistant General Counsel at KPMG. And actually he's going to talk through practical scenario of what I'm going to talk about in theory. You know, those who can do, those who cannot teach and all that. So it's more important, I think, to listen to him for 10, 15 minutes than for me for 10 or 15 minutes. What I'm going to talk about and introduce is a little bit about professional services firms and, and really what has the increase in regulation of technology done to their procurement and use of technology and what does that mean for them in the upcoming years and how do we react and how do those kinds of businesses react. So I look at what are professional services firms quickly, general issues that they might face and then getting on to actually specific professional services technology use filters that we might have to put in place. I mean, what additional things do those types of businesses need to think about on top of everything else in contract, in law, that anyone buying technology or using technology to deliver or service or run their business has to think about? Couldn't come up with anything better than the PASTUFP as its acronym, but uh, there we go. So what are professional services firms? Well, I'm not just going to reel off the list from Wikipedia. Well, I kind of have, actually, but I've also have looked at the research behind it. There's lots of academic papers will tell you what professional services firms actually means. But you know what? It means an awful lot of different types of firms and probably businesses that either you represent, you sell to, or that actually you are in this room, because it means businesses that have a professionalised workforce. What does that mean? Well, it kind of means, if you look at the academic papers, it means they have a bit of an ideology about what they're doing, um, and they operate with a high knowledge intensity. Well, if you look behind what the papers say, that means it means actually they, their output is generally knowledge and complex knowledge intensive, and it's low on capital intensity. It's about people thinking and doing stuff with their minds rather than machines in factories whirring around. And, and the last and probably the most important thing, because it's the regulatory aspect of their use of technology and procurement of technology, is, a, is about them having a regulatory or certification <coughs> body. It's common, that, and we'll look into some of those bodies, that they all have a regulatory or certification body which impacts on how they operate their business, how they provide their services. So that list is a, is a 
a list, but there's many more to add to it. Consultants, lawyers, accountants, auditors, actuaries. The list goes on and on and on. And it obviously really starts to include things like investment banking, because really is, is investment banking and financial services a subset of a, financial, of a professional service in itself. So the list of firms which have got additional worries to think about when they're using or buying technology is pretty long. What things are all of them thinking about? What things does every business need to think about when they're using technology? Well, look, it's all pretty run-of-the-mill stuff. Touched upon today, it's about IT 101, really. Legal issues in contract, yes, it's IPR. Who owns what data? What about my database rights? What about the data protection issues in relation to transfer of personal data? What about my confidentiality? Have I got clauses in the contract? Do I have to rely on Coco and Clark? Do I have to rely on spy catcher cases? What about negligence? Am I thinking about my Mill Donahue's and Stevenson's and my um, spoilt bottles of pop? Or do I have to think about contractually the level of promise I make in my warranties? And I'm really sorry for skipping all over that stuff, but that stuff is really the, the ground, the basics of how we contract for technology. That's not what we're interested in here in particular, because that's an interest for everyone who's contracting or using technology and how they use that in their services. In addition, there's those technology-specific issues which apply to every technology transaction. Again, they're not professional services-specific. Most projects for IT of any sort of size will have a transition or an implementation or a transformation phase. Hmm, okay, that means I've got to make sure. Do I think about milestones? Do I think about liquidated damages? What about exit? If I'm coming back and I'm thinking about a replacement supplier or bringing a service back in-house at the end, have I thought about my exit provisions? <coughs> or have I looked at AstraZeneca and IBM? Um, what about audit and security? We just heard about the importance of it across all different types of IT contracts. What about service levels? Because, hey, isn't IT weird? It's a, it's a kind of industry where we expect things to fail and we manage the degree of failure that's acceptable. All of those things apply to professional services, businesses, just as they apply to any other business. But what about the more specific issues? What about the more interesting things where anyone who's involved in those industries is thinking about on top of those two key things? And this is our little filter. This is how we start filtering through the fact that we have a proposed technology use. And therefore, there's about eight things that we have to think about when this is, well, I think there's about eight things we have to think about when we start using this technology or thinking about how we're buying technology or using it in the provision of our service or the running of our business if we're a professional services firm. The first two things, they're the things I just talked about. They apply to every business. The next six, they start to become more professional services specific. And they're the things that are a bit more interested in because the output of running our project, running our usage, running our decide decision to buy technology or not, is that it gives a decision on technology-based usage where the impacts and the risks are fully understood. My job is very rarely to say no. My job is typically to tell people about the allocation of risks and responsibility and then let proper decision makers within business decide if that's what they want to do. <coughs> and that's what this filter starts to help us to do. So... Who polices the police? Well, it's not Sting. It's the regulatory and governing bodies that we think about. And as, one, as I said, one of, the typically, uh, one of the typical things of a professional services business is it has a regulatory governing body. Um, it often involves some sort of certification, be it solicitors and our law society certificates, be it chartered accountants, chartered architects, etc., etc. Um, and, and they're usually some form of binding code or regulation. Now, this is the most obvious next thing that a professional services firm has to think about when it's using or buying technology. And what does it mean with different types of businesses? And some of these are going to be familiar to, well, to all the lawyers in the room, one of them is going to be really familiar, because it's going to be the law society. Law society and the solicitor's regulation authority that governs how we operate. And what they said is, well, by the way, here's a code of conduct, and also here are additional practice notes. Um, and you have to abide by those, and the repercussions of those can be quite significant. 
Now, this is quite interesting, isn't it? Because actually, let's start thinking about how lawyers, or if I'm an architect, or an auditor, or an actuary, start to provide a service. Um, what are the key parts of technology I'm going to be needing? I'm going to be needing probably email, data storage, software performing some of my services. You know, I use Word a lot, obviously, but maybe you know, there's other parts of software if I'm doing actuarial work. Backup, tie recording and invoicing, all of those technology dependent parts of my service, which I'm either buying in or I'm utilising to perform my service to the business. Each one of these rough example, and I said in the written material is examples from lots of other different kind of professional services. Each kind of these are examples of where the codes of conduct impact on the usage of technology. So, for example, um, paragraph 4.5 of the Information Security Practice Notes for Solicitors says, you should identify and invest in suitable organisational and technology systems to manage and protect the confidential integrity and availability of the various types of information. You can read what it says up there. But you start implying that obligation as you as a business in the provision of the service and or the operation of your business against your purchase of the email system you use, the data storage system you use. Is it therefore appropriate um, and suitable and to start using Hotmail? Is it appropriate to use Google Docs? Do I have to think of certain types of data, data storage? If I'm an actuary, I'm under similar, operational, um, similar obligations. I have a regulatory body. I've got the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries. I've got a code I need to comply with. Ditto with the architects and the architect's code. And I said, near enough... If you go on through the list of um, professional services bodies, each of those has a code which has similar obligations, and very rarely are they specifically, you need to do X, Y, Z. It talks about the appropriateness of the resources being used, being the ability to provide the professional service. What else do we have to think about? That's the first three things. The next one, I've got to think about the next couple of things to think about. Well, an interesting one for professional services <coughs> is the impact on the client or customer terms that are put in place. Because actually, typically, if you think about a lawyer's engagement letter or your terms you might get from your auditors, they're pretty standard form. Um, standard terms. And, and standard terms start to have an impact if, for example, they have obligations within them imposed by the regulatory bodies, which might talk about the restrictions on third-party access to data. And, of course, if I'm using a provider to provide services in relation to that data, do my standard terms match up? And secondly, from the, the legal point of view, we always have to think about the use of standard terms and then up to reasonableness. Because as soon as I use um, standard terms of business, then I have to worry about the, uh, Section 2 of Act 2 and the impact of reasonableness on any exclusion or limitation clauses that are put in place. Um, what does that start causing a problem? Well, if you start thinking about the standard IT contract terms you get and the things that are excluded and the limitations placed on the liability, and then you start thinking about... How about if I try to flow those back onto my customers or my clients as a professional services business? And would that be reasonable, for example, to turn around as an audit business and start saying, by the way, I have no liability for loss of data, loss of profits, loss of revenue, loss of business, et cetera, loss of goodwill in its entirety against the fact that you'll probably accept that from the supplier in the software services industry because actually that might be a lot more standard. There starts to become a delta as a business, one that the professional services provider might be sitting in the middle of and a risk that they'll therefore be picking up under contract. Actually, sorry. And the other point is, uh, and, and it starts to become slightly more esoteric points now, which is about market expectations, professional services providers. Um, with great power comes great responsibility, as said Spider-Man or Voltaire, depends on who your favourites are. But you can look at this and think, well, the expectation as custodians of a knowledge industry is that you are you're coming with a professional standard, the clues in the name. Um, now, it's interesting because that contradicts slightly with IT. And as I said before, IT is a really weird industry because there is an expectation of a certain amount of allowable failure before it comes a problem. That's why we have service levels. That's why we buy support and maintenance for software. 
those two things don't always sit well together where your customers as professional services providers expect you to provide a professional absolute excellent service but the systems and solutions you provide that with may not be given to the same standard to you. Three other things quickly to think about before I let Ian run through it in a more uh, practical scenario. Um, the business structure of professional services organisations often they're not limited companies or PLCs. They're partnerships, they're LLPs, they're other kind of business formations. They don't want to get involved in perhaps some of the publicity and other obligations that fall on limited companies or PLCs. That can sometimes make them a little bit, little bit more organisationally convoluted. It means approvals and governance can be more tricky, and that runs right the way through any sort of IT project. The business strategy of that professional services firms... Um, Professional services firms are typically early adopters of IT um, and investors in IT. I'd say lawyers probably carved out of that one, if I'm honest. But other than that, I think they're looking <coughs> to get involved in IT and they have a business strategy about where the business is trying to go. And typically that is enforced and people want to understand how any IT procurement or usage fits within that business strategy itself. And, and the last point, and again, look, I'm really sorry for cantering through, but it is all in the written material. But the last point in a, in a general sense is a, a point Paul touched upon really in relation to financial services losses. <coughs> Suppliers are very aware that um, the repercussions from a failure of a professional services business, for example, the audit company losing that data in relation to due diligence on a potentially secret um, business and all this um, sorry, um, really confidential financial services data could be absolutely catastrophic. And it has an impact on their approach to contractual terms because they know that actually the risk is significant and will be significantly costly. And I think, therefore, that the provider itself is looking to say, actually, I'm going to take on less and be more conservative in my terms in relation to your professional service provider, because if it goes wrong, we're in distinct trouble. And that means that, again, the exposure between the terms that the professional services firms offers its customer against the terms it receives from something which perhaps be supplying a fundamental part of the business might be absolutely significant. So, look, I've whizzed through that, but I'm going to pass you over to Ian. Ian works for KPMG, Assistant General Counsel there. He's also worked for EY, and prior to that was also at Accenture. So he's a bit of poacher-term gamekeeper as well. Okay, well, thanks, Andrew. And uh, as Andrew has already kindly mentioned, I am uh, Ian Dunn, Assistant GC at uh, KPMG. And uh, I'm hopefully going to give you some quick practical experience of Andrew's snazzy filter in action. Okay, uh, let me give you the, the very quickest uh, bio of KPMG. It's in my contract. Uh, no, not really. Um, we're a global network of firms. Um, we provide audit tax and advisory services. We have over 152,000 people um, operating in 156 countries, and last year our revenues were in excess of 23 uh, billion US dollars. Um, so it's fair to say that we are one of the world's largest uh, professional services firms. Okay, so bragging over. Um, let me ask myself a really easy question, probably the only easy question I'll get today. How can technology help KPMG? Well, it's pretty easy because our clients are demanding that we pr provide services far more efficiently and provide them with innovation. Our staff, especially the Generation Y um, people that we heard of earlier, are demanding that we provide them with mobile devices. You know, they want to work on the go, so all our staff work from iPads and iPhones. And last but not least, my COO is constantly berating us to ensure that we take advantage of technology solutions that may help reduce our infrastructure costs and uh, the cost of provision of our service. Okay, let me think about um, an example of a technology solution that really can help KPMG. 
Uh, that would be, um, I'm sorry to say this, data storage and security. Um, one of the problems with being on last is you're probably done to death with data. <laughs> Very important for KPMG. Um, we possess, we receive, we create, we retain, we manage a lot of data. Um, Paul Hinton, I think, used the term, I think it was zettabytes, 2.8 zettabytes. If you ask me, we're probably sitting on one of those. But, you know, that data that we receive and all auditors receive is actually incredibly sensitive data. There's plenty of price-sensitive market information in there. Uh, there's protectively marked material. There's classified government information. Um, it costs us an incredible amount to store, manage, and secure that data. Now, we're all here today, Microsoft, earlier this morning, regarding possible data solutions, how third parties can help us. Uh, you have the cloud, you have other whiz-bang, fully uh, managed data center services. Uh, they could take the entire issue from us. Um, so why aren't we just jumping into the cloud? Why aren't we just jumping into a data center in a low-cost location? Well, this is where I have to have a look at Andrew's filter. We're a professional services organization. And we must at least take account of the following issues. Uh, any data solution must meet our regulatory requirements. We are massively regulated. Uh, our main regulator, uh, because we're auditors in the UK, is the Institute of Chartered Accountants of England and Wales, uh, the ICAEW. Um, however, other regulators that have a serious reach and jurisdiction over us include the FSA, the SEC, the FRC, the PCAOB, the ICOT, the AQRD, which used to be known as the AIU. I kid you not, to say we're the subject of sufficient oversight would be a huge understatement. All those regulators have something to tell us, whether it's binding rules or guidance on how we are able or not able to do things with client data. Uh, I've got a little example there, section 130, 140 of the ICAEW code. Essentially what that says in summary is we are not able to transfer client's confidential information outside of the firm without the express consent of the client. Uh, we must take all technical and operational measures to ensure client confidentiality. And we're not actually able to use that data for our personal advantage. So I know we talked about data mining earlier. None of that for us. Um, clearly, we're keen to abide by our regulators. They're all, they're all empowered. They all have teeth. And the ultimate sanction is the removal of our audit license, which for an audit firm with over 152,000 people is not a place uh, we want to get to any time soon. Um, another result of heavy regulation is in the makeup of our business terms. Um, the regulators, again, have plenty to say about how we can contract with clients. And even our standard business terms, I've worked in, in different industries, even our standard business terms are, are quite onerous for KPMG, heavily restrictive in what we can do with data. Um, one of the biggest examples of a difficulty I have with the business term because of my regulator is we provide a lot of audit, statutory audit services. And by that, all that really means is auditing large companies under the Companies Act. Um, I am unable to limit my liability in relation to that service. So any engagement letter that I, that I have that provides that service, and that's a lot of what we do, I cannot limit my liability. Um, any service provider, IT service provider that comes to me and offers me a data solution needs to understand that and needs to share some of my pain. I can't have the negotiation where they say, well, we'll give you a, a cap on 
liability of 12 months fees in case we mess up with your data. I'm sitting there saying, guys, I, for my part, if you mess up with my data, I have an unlimited liability exposure to my ultimate clients. Now, you need to share some of that pain with me. Um, in my experience, the more third-party providers find out about the potential liabilities in this area, the more conservative they become. They start suggesting extra security. Of course, that costs me. Um, they start shying away from any uh, share of the delta of the risk of unlimited liability. It's actually very, very frustrating. You feel like that they should maybe have done their homework before they came along and started offering solutions. So if they aren't appropriate terms, then we can't go forward. So I might have a solution that pleases my regulator, uh, is on, or potentially on, appropriate contractual terms. The solution needs to go further. Market expectations. Irrespective of what's in my contract, the market, the public, perceives auditors as custodians, safe pairs of hands. If you can't trust an auditor with your sensitive data, given the types of data that they receive daily, then who can you trust? Um, a data loss issue would be a disaster for a company like KPMG. Added to that, we have rather large service lines in our advisory and forensic practices that advise clients on the best ways to protect and manage data. That a data loss incident would not be the best advert for that service line. I also talk about client expectations. Again, over and above what's in the contract, you could say to the client, I can move your data to an offshore location. Check your contract, provided I maintain security and confidentiality over that data. The client's going to say, hang on a second, I don't care what the contract says. You're not exposing me to any unnecessary risk. And the risk in doing that is there's a lot of sensitive data. That data is of interest to foreign regulators and law enforcement agencies. As soon as you physically transfer that data to a separate jurisdiction, you increase the risk of those local law enforcement agencies having a far better chance of seizing that data for their own investigations. Um, legally, it shouldn't matter that they should have to go through the same legal processes to ask for the data as they do in the UK. However, I can tell you in practice what happens is those law enforcement agencies, they walk into data centres, they say, where is the KPMG UK disk? Where is the server? They're not even sure what they're taking. They take it and then they apologise for the abusive process later. Our clients know this and they're adamant that uh, any sort of offshore solution has to be of the highest calibre for them to even consider um, our moving their data offshore. And again, the solution needs to provide me with that answer. So it might be offshore, but please tell me that it's the most cutting-edge, secure solution. Our client almost would have heard of it and say, great, I'm more than happy that you know, it's under lock and key in relation to this particular solution, notwithstanding that it may be in a foreign jurisdiction. Okay, um, in the event we've got any service providers left, and crucially that in the event their, their solution is still financially um, appealing to me, because I'm sure all these things are adding on costs to their solution. It must meet my internal expectations. We're professional services firm. Most professional services firms are partnerships. Um, partnerships are fairly tribal. It's very hard to push through firm-wide initiatives that please everyone. Um, an example I'd say there, it's always going to be a difficult conversation for me to have with uh, the lead partner of one of our biggest banking clients to say, uh, as a firm, we've taken this, this, the decision to move all the data offshore under the management of a very safe third party. Now, all you have to do next week is send your client a notice saying that. 
That is not an easy conversation. The justification that it's for the benefit of the firm as a whole is often something that doesn't really hold much weight with a partner of a seriously large banking client. And then we get into the issues of, well, that's great, but you're not taking my client's data to that new solution. And if you start having those conversations, the financial advantage of even doing this in the first place soon gets eroded. So the solution needs to give me you know, some material to have that conversation. Look how good this solution is. Look at the security of this solution. And actually, look how much that's saving the firm. All that needs to be built in. Last but not least, um, we, like, like most of the big four accountancy firms, have an overarching firm, uh, what I would call a franchise holder. It's called KPMG International. And their job is to herd the cats. So all the member firms in all the 156 different countries, they try and guide them into consistent strategies. And IT strategy is one of them. You can imagine it would be pretty awkward if half our firms were on Lotus Notes and half our firms were operating via Microsoft Outlook. Um, they try and ensure that we're all moving in the same direction. So any significant technology solution proposed to be taken by one member firm needs to be ratified and approved by KPMG International. And one of the things they look at is can we use this solution for the benefit of other member firms? So let's not reinvent the wheel every time. So does the solution need to be scalable? You know, can I add on member firms' data? And hopefully we won't have to go through this process with other member firms because we've already done most of the, uh, most of the risk assessment. So I, th I think the message from all that is we are in a, a particular space as professional services firms. It is a conflict that we have every day. Look, there are advantages of technology. You can really make some big savings. You look innovative. But then we have, look, we're auditors. Unfortunately, the market and the regulation is not moving as fast as the technology. Um, we're willing to make risk decisions, but it's important that we check through the filter, as Andrew mentioned, and the checklist to ensure that when we do make a technology uses decision, it's based upon a full risk assessment of the issues. And in my experience, if these risk issues are going to derail your project, better that it derails it at the start in the gestation planning phase than, let's say, in the transition period of a contracted full service. That's it. <laughs>